and welcome to this episode of DQ Chats. My name is Stephanie Tudor and I am the president of Drama Queensland. Before we begin, I wanted to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded on, the Yagara and Turrbal people, and acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge them as the first storytellers and the first artists of this land. Now, in today's episode, I spoke to Madeline Little. Madeline is a performer, theatre maker, writer and access consultant for the performing arts based in Brisbane. She is also the festival director for the Undercover Artist Festival. The Undercover Artist Festival exists to promote the outstanding work of performing artists with disability. It provides a platform for these artists to present their work and gives them better representation in the industry. Now, Maddie and I had a great chat about what the Undercover Artist Festival is, but also working with our own students in the classroom and what we can do and how we can best remove barriers for students in our classroom that are experiencing uh, disability. However, I ran into some technical difficulties, which we didn't discover until after recording, and it sounds like I'm underwater. So I want to apologise for that to begin with, but trust me, Maddie's insight, her knowledge and the advice she gives is well worth pushing through my underwater sound. Uh, So sorry again and I hope you really enjoy and are able to take some really great insights away from Maddie's interview because I know I definitely did. So here's the interview with Madeline Little. Welcome Maddie, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Oh, good. Um, so happy to have you here and um, have this conversation. So I guess to start off with, I want to know, how did you start in this space? You've co-devised, directed, performed in numerous works, um, as well as getting into the Undercover Arts Festival. How did how did this all start for you? Um, when I was a child, I wanted to be Hilary Duff. So there was a very obvious uh, link to the performing arts there. And I did, you know, I did singing lessons and piano lessons and choirs and all of that sort of stuff. Um, in primary school, there weren't many drama opportunities. So, you know, I made my way to high school at Loretto College and um, did drama all the way through. Um, and it was really clear that, you know, drama was one of those subjects where, um, it was less um, like <laughs> pulling teeth to try and get good grades. Like not saying that I was an A-plus student all the time, but I felt like if I put my best effort in because I loved it, it was easy to do reasonably well. Um, and then I had to pick what to do for uni. It was a toss-up between music and drama. Um, I had felt at that time that a theatre career was probably more accessible to me than a music career career would be. Um, it was silly of me in retrospect because I think it's about the same in terms of accessibility, but I just had to pick something. I picked drama um, and I think it was in uh, my second year of uni that I got involved with the student theatre company there and I played my first ever like lead role in a show that wasn't a high school drama assessment. And it was like, yep, okay, this is it this is what I'm doing. I can't do anything else now. I know how this feels. This is, um, you know, there was something about the magic of storytelling that just sucked me in. Um, Mm. And then from there it was, you know, knowing that as a disabled actor and theatre maker, there were going to be far less opportunities for me than there would be for someone who is non-disabled but has the same experience, skills, body type, you know, all the rest of it. Um, I got involved with Indelibility Arts, which is a 
an inclusive theatre company started by Katarina Hebbard and Rebecca Alexander um, and joined the ensemble, which is, you know, deaf and disabled performers. Um, and we started working on a show called Look Mum No Hands, which then evolved into Look Mum No Hands, The Legless Bar Years. We were in a bar at a variety hour and I owned the the bar and in retrospect I'm like what kind of 19 year old owns a bar but anyway you know maybe maybe I won the lottery <laughs> question that already just <laughs> we're just gonna go with it um but that show was the first experience that I had in actually being allowed to tell my story on my terms so that show was inspired by um each of our there were four of us in the ensemble at the time each of our experiences and stories and at that time um when we were writing it um you know, I was 19. I very much hated who I was because of disability, because it was had such a negative connotation associated with the word and with the way that people treated me. And, you know, when things are inaccessible, it's not just that it's difficult to get around, it's that it's dehumanising and it makes you feel far less than everybody else. Um, but then I started uh, looking into accessible theatre practice. I was like, surely... There's something out there that makes theatre more accessible for artists as well as audiences. I know that people plonk Auslan interpreters on the side of the stage and call it a day, but I don't think that's enough. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, you know, jumped across to Perth and attended a residency with Jenny Seeley, who is the artistic director of Grey Eye Theatre Company in the UK. Um, and they, like, they are the world leaders in integrated accessibility in theatre. It's amazing. Everything is signed in um, British Sign Language and captioned, and it's all interwoven into the very fabric of the aesthetic of the work, and they call it the aesthetics of access. And that was just so enticing to me because I went, oh, how amazing would it be if anyone could come see a show because they don't have to justify their existence to get in, they don't have to ask for anything to get in. It's just mm -hmm. you go in, you sit down, or if you've BYO'd your own wheelchair, then you can just roll on in and just enjoy a show that's accessible for everyone and have it be so well done that, you know, for the folk who are hearing and don't need captions, they barely notice them, or it's something that adds to the overall immersive experience. So I was really passionate about that. I honed in on that in my Master of Arts um, research at USQ. And through that, um, you know, I discovered that it's actually not anywhere near as hard as it seems to integrate access into performance. Um, you just have to know where to start. Um, and yeah, from there, I've just, you know, funnily enough, I applied for the festival director job during the pandemic. Um, so that was my first job interview and I'd lost a whole bunch of work. I was meant to, you know, remount my show, which um, yeah. was the show I developed during my master's, which tested accessible theatre practice. I was really keen to bring that to Brisbane and say like, hey, you know, industry folk, come along. It's not that hard. Like, let's let's talk. Um, and I just started access consulting too. And I'd lost all my clients because they were losing staff and couldn't afford me and yeah. all the rest of it. So I applied for the job, thankfully got it, which was very nice. Um, I think possibly because it's a, it's a very niche thing to be like, I'm a disabled performer and theatre maker, so I get it from the artist side. I previously worked in ticketing at Le Theatre Company, so I get ticketing trends. Um, you know, the selling tickets makes me so happy. So like, really excited about that. <laughs> and, um, I understand front of house and back of house. I understand what goes into the whole theatre experience. Um, inside and out and um very thankful that they 
saw fit to give me the job. And I've just been trying to create more opportunities for deaf and disabled artists um, now than there were when I first went to uni. Um, Because although the festival started in 2015, it happened again in 2017. I heard about it in 2017. Like I finally knew what it was then, but it still wasn't um, as clear to me what my pathway could be as an artist. So Mm. my goal is that for the next, for the next Maddie leaving high school, if you're choosing your career or like, you know, trying to make your preferences of what you need to go to and what to study, that um, it's not a lack of options that prohibit someone from going down this path um, and hopefully affecting change in the m- mainstream too, that people start realising that deaf and disabled artists are professional artists with, um, you know, equal skill and talent. And it's just that they might perform in a slightly different context, but it's not a bad context. It's we just need to challenge what our standards are and why they are so skewed towards a non-disabled standard that is exclusive and is oppressive. So mm-hmm. that was really long and winded. <laughs> no, and but I think you you touched on some amazing um, points there. And I think you know I'm I think something that that really struck me about what you said is about telling your story. And I think as a as a drama teacher, we talk to students about that all the time. You know, the power of drama giving you a voice and giving you something to say and. And something I say to my students a lot is you can't create theatre unless you have something to say, unless you have a story to tell, whether that is your story or somebody else's story. Um, so it, it's interesting and it's also, um, I guess, a little bit heartbreaking that it was, wasn't until you were outside of school that you felt that you could tell your story. So I guess how as a teacher and how can I empower my students and provide opportunity for students within a school context to feel more confident in being able to tell their stories? Yeah, it's a very hard question because it is Mm. so heavily dependent on all of the variables, like which students and what are their backgrounds and uh, do they even want to tell their stories at this point in time or is privacy really important because, you know, we all know that high schools, you know, bullying does exist um, and Mm. those sorts of, um, you know, the hesitation to tell your story because you're afraid of what so-and-so might say at lunchtime is it feels like the end of the world when you're at high school Um, Mm. and then you get to uni and you're like, oh, actually, maybe I don't really care that much, but you have to have that time and that space um, before you get there. but I think it all comes down to honouring who a person is and accepting mm-hmm. that they are they are whole and they are valuable just as they are. So removing this idea that any form of disability or access requirement is inherently a negative and start thinking about it as just, matter of fact, neutral circumstance. Like, I don't use stairs. Um, because I find them difficult. I can't navigate them. I'm sure if a building was on fire, I'd just throw myself down some. But, you know, I <laughs> I don't use stairs. But that's in high school that was such a negative, weighty thing that all of my friends would, you know, run up and down the stairs to get to class and I'd have to wait an extra five to ten minutes for the lift. It was worse if somebody else needed it. 
Um, and then I'd probably get in trouble for being late to class because I was late, mm. even though, you know, that's not something I can control. When I deliver um, disability awareness training, the example that I give is that emus are still birds. Um, we don't say that they're not birds or less valuable birds because they don't fly. Hmm. And when I give that example, a lot of people go, huh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is odd when you're a kid and you learn that emus don't fly, you're like, but why? Um, and that innate curiosity is just part of the human experience. But ultimately, um, it's still like our national bird <laughs> and it's still valuable and respected. And so the more that we can go, okay, so if you've got 10 students and maybe two of them um, are students with disability and they've got different access needs, it's just a matter of fact. It's not an inherently negative thing that that student has you know, a harder life, a worse off life, they're disadvantaged, et cetera, et cetera. The reason we believe those things is because we exist under what we call the medical model of disability. And the medical model of disability states that there's something wrong with the person's body or mind, and that's what makes it hard for them to do things. That's what disables them. What we have to do and what the national best practice standard is, um, is supported by people with disability Australia, um, the organisation, not just the people. <laughs> but the the social model of disability is where we need to shift to. And so if we're talking about empowering students to use their voices um, and to be confident and comfortable to use their voices, we can only do so once we remove as much as possible the negative atmosphere around disability yeah. and moving to the social model of disability, which says under the social model, Um, People have different bodies and different minds and they are disabled by barriers that they face in society. I am disabled Mm. when I encounter a flight of stairs because I can't use those stairs. Um, But if there's a lift, then I'm not disabled anymore because I can just get in the lift and go where I need to go. Um, And those barriers can be physical, they can be sensory, they can be, you know, someone... um, with autism or sensory processing disorder might have a really hard time under fluorescent lights because they flicker at a rate that normal, you know, um, abled eyes can't really see. But if, if anyone was flashing light in your eyes for 30 minutes straight, you'd probably, you know, be really uncomfortable with that and unable to focus. So it's, it's looking at, okay, the access barrier is the light. It's not the student's inability to control themselves around the light. Um, Mm. The access barrier is the distance from point A to point B. It's not that that student isn't working hard enough to get from point A to point B. Um, And I often thought about it a lot because I used a mobility scooter in high school, but you're not supposed to use them in the rain and it would rain a lot. And so I'd be like, oh crap, what am I going to do? Am I going to risk this piece of equipment that's thousands of dollars uh, that mm. I I didn't have a job. <laughs> I couldn't afford it. <laughs> um, and am I going to risk that or am I going to get in trouble? Um, and that's a really difficult place to be in because that constant feeling of like, I'm going to get in trouble for something I have zero control over whatsoever mm. is horrific. And if we shift to a social model of understanding where we can recognize that access barriers exist and that, it's not the disabled person's job to overcome them. It's, it, you know, it's like a, what is it? One in five Australians live with disability, right? So by that same token, 
if four Australians have influenced the way that the building has been structured because they can navigate it just fine, how is it that one mm. person's job to overpower those other four <laughs> to make mm. change? Um, and then, you know, there's also the inherent power structure that exists in society, which places non-disabled people above disabled people. Um, mm. it, through the media, through society, through whatever, we are told from a very young age that we aren't worthy, we aren't valued, we aren't respected. We, you know, unless we're, quote, overcoming disability to become a Paralympian like Dylan Orcott, um, you know, we're not worthy unless we have gold medals. We're not worthy unless we yeah. become this inspirational um, story. And if you've already got that power dynamic at play, the power dynamic of having a um, or what appears to be a non-disabled teacher um, in control of the class, you're doubly oppressed. And, mm. of course, there's duty of care at play. There's things that the teacher has to do to make this the classroom environment safe. Um, but it's like a million times less likely that I would have spoken up in high school about my access needs in certain circumstances because I just wasn't prepared to get in trouble or deal with fallout because I was scared because, you know, I was just a student. I should know my place as a student. I did what I was told mm. and um, was scared of rocking the boat. Um, even if, you know, in retrospect, I go, hang on a minute. No, I have a human right to exist in an equitable level to other people. But it's so much harder for a student to raise that. And so the teacher really has to be that person to make that point of connection and go, what do you need to be present in this space? What do you need to be part of this activity? Um, and and knowing that the student probably won't have the answers straight off the bat because we don't get asked that. <laughs> it's yeah very strange to be asked, you know, what your access needs are and just have them met. Like I, the first time I had that experience where it was just so easy and I didn't have to think about it was when I sat on an Australia Council peer assessment grant uh, panel, sorry. And um, yeah, I just put my access requirements in the form, flew to Sydney, arrived, and it was like, bada bing, bada boom, I had the perfect chair. I had the perfect, they booked the perfect hotel for me that was accessible. They'd, you know, I overheat really easily. There was a full cup of ice at any given moment that they just freshened up without me asking every hour or so. So I always had, you know, mm. it was just, and that was life changing because for that whole time that we were assessing grants, I didn't have to think or advocate once on the basis of disability. I could just be a professional in the space. And so mm. that's what we talk about, um, you know, access requirements and meeting them is if you're able to meet students access requirements, you're removing like, 10 things to think about so that they can just engage in the work. Um, you know, there wasn't a single performance assessment I did in high school where I didn't have to map out, okay, what kind of blocking can I actually achieve um, on a good day versus a bad day? What if assessment falls on a bad day and I need to sit down? Um, how do we do this? If I'm sitting down too much, that's not enough energy on stage. And how do we, you know, all of these things. Um, that I wouldn't have known how to communicate to the teacher that I was experiencing all of those things um, because I was scared. So, you know, mm. the more that teachers can position themselves as, you know, yes, you'd still 
the teacher, you're still running the room, but you're open to meeting access requirements because you want it to be an equitable space. It's not about special treatment. It's not about anything like that. It is literally the equivalent of, um, you know, someone wearing eyeglasses. It's the equivalent of, you know, if a student with a sprained ankle for two weeks uses crutches and needs support getting around, then why don't we just automatically provide that support to people who need it year round? Mm. How would you recommend that teachers enter this space with students? Because I think some of the things you've talked about um, are things that I've experienced in my own classroom and I'm sure other people have as well. You know, you want to, you want to do the right thing and give the student the opportunity to engage in the class, how they want to engage. Um, but I think as you pointed out, high school is a time where you're trying to figure out your identity, no matter who you are and to add that additional challenge of not knowing how people are going to perceive you and your disability. I know that I've had students in the past that have really tried to, I guess, minimize the needs they have. Yeah. And it's interesting as they get older, um, that things that they found acceptable or things that they wanted in year seven or eight, by the time they get to year 11 and 12, they don't want that because they, I mean, I'm I'm making assumptions here that it it makes them stand out too much or that makes them, how do you, how do you start navigating that? Because obviously you want to provide the best experience for the student, but that's educational as well as emotional support. Yeah, I think you start at the the very beginning, which is the concept that art is for everyone. And if art mm. is for everyone, that means everyone. Um, so you start there and then you, you and it, look, it's probably best place for the very beginning of the school year to be able to set the, the expectation that in this class, I am here to make sure that you do your best and you have a fair, equitable, safe an awesome experience in drama. Um, so here are the different, you can rattle off different options that might be possible is, you know, do you need scripts in a larger font? Do you need, sorry, hit my mic. <laughs> do you need scripts in a larger font? Do you need, um, you know, better lighting in the room? Should we make sure that there are lamps in the room rather than fluorescent lights? Should we um, think about you know, making sure that you have access to headphones or earplugs at any given time. Do you need me to be conscious that you might be five minutes late because you're waiting for the lift? Um, Do you need me to be aware that in the rain, (laughs) it's harder for you to get to class? And it's not that you're lazy. It's just that it's harder to move. Um, What I do for clients um, with my access consulting is I've actually developed like an access requirements um, form, which a version of could be, um, suitable in the school environment. But if you're, you know, at the very beginning of the year, just passing out these forms and going, it's, you know, no one else knows. It's just between you and I, and you can tick anything Uh that you need or you think you might need. And if you gather that at the beginning of the year, and then for any other student who joins your class, because we all know people change subjects all the time, um, (laughs) you know, you've got a very good starting point where you can go, okay, 90% of my students have no additional access needs. That's fine. But I've identified that two really need, um, 
dimmable lighting and I've identified that two really need that larger font script. So what I can do is I can distribute all scripts in that larger font because that's fair and equitable Mm -hmm. Um, and I can make sure that there are lamps in the room and I can check in with those students, you know, each lesson. I can also make it clear to those students that this is what I'm doing. Like, you know, I've decided that for our class I'm going to do this and it's not about singling out I'm going to do this because Maddie needs this um yeah that's where the trouble really comes to play is because it's it's so much harder when the teacher inadvertently singles you out and that's where the point of different comes from um or if people perceive there to be some sort of privilege like people in high school couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that I got extra time on exams. And the reason being Uh, is that, you know, I have a muscle condition and writing at length very furiously would be so sore and painful and I would fatigue and I wouldn't be able to write as fast as my brain thought. Um, But people weren't comfortable with that. They'd just see me going to extra time and be like, oh, what's, why do you get special privileges? Your legs don't work, but you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, So it's, it's if you're able to provide that agency to the students to make that call for themselves and then also making it really clear that at any point during the year they can come to you and say, hey, I've been thinking about how I've really struggled to stand up during was it zip, zap, zop. <laughs> um, can we start doing that while sitting down? Um, because, yeah, yeah, we can. And we can challenge ourselves to use our bodies in different ways. We can... There's mm-hmm. so many ways to adapt that it's that lack of information that makes it hard to do so. Um, but starting with agency and having the students know from the get-go that you are committed to making sure it's accessible and equitable for everyone, that's the point of difference because that says I'm going to make the effort to include you, not you have to make an effort to be included. That's the mm. huge difference. So about opening the door and, you know, building a relationship with the student so that they can feel comfortable coming to you. Um, But I think one of the other things that you said is, you know, all of the different ways that we can make things accessible or, as you said before, remove barriers. But for someone who is who has maybe not had a um, a student with a disability or is encountering a student with a, a different disability than they've experienced before, where do you start with how to approach that or what information? Because I think there's so much out there and the internet can be a big and scary place. And I think mm. teachers want to do the right thing, but where do we start? Where should we go? It's a very good question. I mean, I recommend disability awareness training for everyone, um, which is something that I offer self-promo, madelinelittle.com. Um, <laughs> but it's um, it's I find that starting with, awareness training is really helpful because it gives you the why behind why we do things and why we go to certain places. Um, the next point of call I would suggest, um, and disclosure, I do sit on the board of Arts Access Australia, but I do recommend looking into the resources that Arts Access Australia has um, and some of the opportunities that may come up. Um, People with Disability Australia also has language guides and links to other resources. So that's a good place to start. But ultimately, wherever you go and whatever you research, the the important thing to remember is that you have to look for disability-led resources because I cannot stress to you enough how 
damaging some of the resources are that are developed by parents and carers or um, even the medical system. It, it's really difficult because that's people speaking about us without that lived experience to actually know if what they're saying is accurate or respectful. As we're moving more towards a social model approach to disability, um, I think, I hope that people are recognising that disabled people should be listened to, even if it requires listening in a slightly different way. And it's um, it's really important in the disability community, there's the, the phrase, nothing about us without us. And anything that is done without our involvement or consent or leadership is considered um, very unhelpful to the cause. So um, looking for anything that is disability led. There are so many disabled activists even that you can just follow on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook in your private time. And you will learn just by scrolling through. Um, if you're having a cup of tea on the weekend and avoiding marking, you know, assignments, then you can, you can, you can scroll through Instagram and, and read what, um, what some of the amazing activists have to say. I think you learn so much more by engaging in disabled voices than in resources that were designed to uphold that medical model standard. Um, the UN has actually endorsed the social model of disability as best practice. So I think mm -hmm. that that's also a really good insight into uh, possibly how far behind Australia is, that it's not something mm. that everyone knows about. But yeah, if you start with people with Disability Australia and Arts Access Australia, um, even Australia Council for the Arts has some good resources. And if you look at um, their commitment to accessibility is really strong as well in every application, in every opportunity. Um, they are doing really good stuff. So yeah, I hope, hopefully that's helpful. And of course, Undercover Artist Festival is, um, you know, part of that too. We, we've actually got some personal development opportunities coming up, including, um, I don't know when this podcast will come out, but we've got a workshop in August, which is all about allyship in a disability arts context, which I've programmed specifically for the purpose of having non-disabled identifying and hearing teachers, practitioners, arts workers come into the space and learn how they can, yeah, be better allies in the space. So there are certainly opportunities out there to help do that education work for you and with you without it needing to be a huge daunting task in your own research time. Mm. And I think it's interesting that you say about parents and carers, because I think sometimes that's our first point of call, you know, yeah. especially with younger students and um, especially primary school teachers. Mm. Those students are sometimes unaware of what they need or unaware of how to advocate for themselves. Um, so I think it's, it's really important that you've said that because it's not about not talking to the parents and carers, mm. but it's about making sure that we are including the students in those conversations. Absolutely. And, yeah. And it's, having their voice heard as well. It's, I remember clear as day um, when my history teacher, Mrs. Valentine was talking about the difference between primary and secondary sources. And so primary sources, are, mm. you know, I was there and I lived it and this is my story. And a secondary source is, I was kind of there. I watched her live it. So I think, yeah, this is this is what I noticed from watching her do the thing. Um, and that's exactly what I mean. Parents and carers are secondary sources. 
Mm. people with disability are the primary sources and so if I would get marked down on a history assignment for using too many secondary <laughs> sources <laughs> then I think it's only fair that teachers have to do the same thing <laughs> I like that analogy I think that's something um that teachers can grasp and I think the the hard thing is sometimes in this space people are so scared of doing the wrong thing and um, saying something offensive or doing something offensive or, um, you know, put, making the student feel worse than when we started. Um, so what would be your advice for teachers that feel like that, that go, I don't know where to start with this because I don't want to do it tokenistically, mm. but I'm, I'm worried or I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant because I haven't had these experiences before. I would start with educating on uh, disability-focused language because there are lots of terms that we just inherently use that are part of our vocabulary, um, like the word stupid or crazy. Um, you know, those are examples that are so prevalent in our language that unfortunately do have um, negative associations with mental illness. And um, so, yeah, if you look at the language guide, again, People with Disability Australia has a good one. I also provide one through uh, my training and consultation services um, because I I instantly know the difference between a safe room and an unsafe room based on the language of the people who are in it. Um, mm. And, you know, I've avoided uh, an arts organisation um, that I loved because I knew that one of their leaders was using the R word very frequently despite me having provided that training and feedback already so wow it's it you know and it's it's huge and understanding the um the the origins of some of the words that we use as well like when we say that the r word is bad it's not just because it's a slur and it's awful and it makes people sad it came from a time when disabled people were put in institutions and were abused mm -hmm. so and it, it it's a similar thing as if we're accidentally using terms that are connected to abuse, <laughs> um, whether or not the students have the full extent of why a word is harmful, they they will pick up on it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that that's the, that's the crux of it. I think if you, if you know that your intention is a fair and equitable experience for everyone and you're approaching it as such and you approach the student and you look for disabled-led resources and voices first and foremost, you're on the right track. Everyone makes mistakes. Absolutely, everyone mm. does. I make mistakes even um, when dealing with some access requirements uh, for some of my, you know, peers and colleagues. I've, you know, gone, oh crap. Okay, we really needed two Auslan interpreters, and this one is leaving. Oh, what do we do? Um, making mistakes is human, but treating people as less than is not okay, and that's what we want to avoid. So as long as your intention is there, and understanding that. You know, sometimes despite your best intentions, we will still make mistakes that hurt people. Um, mm. I think it's really valuable for teachers in particular to be okay with apologising because, you know, I know that you're near the leader of the room and, and the class and everything, and you do have to, you know, have control of the classroom. But I think, you know, I, I can't recall any teachers who are like outwardly awful to me, but there were a couple of moments where my access requirements were missed and I think um, that perspective was missed and I think if I had mm. heard the word sorry you know like I'm sorry that um I raised my voice at you because you were late I didn't realize the lift was broken mm. that would have meant the world to me as a 14 year old going 
okay, maybe I can be safe in this class. Maybe I can try my best. Maybe I will be, you know, okay. And remembering that everything is so much bigger <laughs> in, in teenage world, everything mm -hmm. is so much bigger. And so what seems like a minor blip can drastically change how someone feels about an entire subject for the course of their lives. I know that sounds really heavy and daunting, but that's where the intention comes in. And if you're doing everything that you can and the student can see the efforts because mm -hmm. you're making it an effort for everyone in the class, that's, that's awesome. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's really important. It comes back to what we were talking about before about rapport and about opening that door and making sure those students feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And I think, you know, coming back to what you said earlier about the fact that arts is for everyone. Mm. How do you do that through the um, Undercover Artist Festival? Can you talk to us a little bit about, um, um, I guess, what that festival looks like? And yeah. and you said before that teachers can get involved um, yeah. through workshops, but what else does the festival look like? Yeah, so Undercover Artist Festival happens every two years um, in partnership with Queensland Theatre and Brisbane Festival, actually. Last year um, we were in September, I think it was, oh, exact dates are hard. I think it was the 15th to the 17th, but I could be wrong. Um, but um, we present disability-led um, performance. Um, so it's dance, drama, music, comedy, poetry, performance art, um, any sort of mishmash of the above. And um, our focus is, you know, we've got three different tracks in the festival. We've got the creative track, which is focused on professional standard work by artists with disability or who are deaf. We've got the community track, which does provide a platform for, um, you know, community arts groups to get involved and showcase their work and get to know one another. And then we've got the career track, which features um, workshops and panel talks and things like that, that are important for deaf and disabled artists, but are also important for our wider art sector as well. And mm -hmm. I think oftentimes we forget that, um, you know, drama teachers in particular, but all performance, um, performing arts teachers are a crucial component of the art sector because you're feeding the students through the system mm -hmm. <laughs> so that they can get involved. And so, you know, we've... Um, in, in our two-year cycle looking forward, we've got a development year and a, a festival year, and this year is our development year. So we've got a few different workshops. We just presented one uh, last week, um, and that was a grant writing workshop, which is really suitable for deaf and disabled artists mm -hmm. who are early career, but any artist really in the early stages of their career wanting some money. Um, our next one will be a CV development day, which will allow deaf and disabled artists the opportunity to learn how to pull together a performance CV, which is different to a regular CV. And how do you even approach that? Um, and they'll be able to get headshots at a really low cost, which is awesome. Then we've got our mm. Allyship 101 workshop, which um, will be led by Professor Bree Hadley from QUT, focusing on the different types of allyship within a disability arts context and encouraging thoughtful self-reflection from any teachers, arts practitioners, arts workers, directors, performance makers who might work with people with disability and want to know how to do it safely and better um, and probably just feel more confident in doing so. Um, and then the workshop that we've got after that is actually Auslan Dramaturgy of Shakespeare, which is an Auslan-only environment for 
deaf and hard of hearing in Auslan using folk to get in and translate Shakespeare to Auslan, um, which is amazing. I'm not I'm not allowed in that room because I'm not fluent in Auslan yet, but I will be one day. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we, our focus is really on providing as many opportunities as possible to fill the gaps in education that exist because of access barriers. So knowing that although I did a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Drama at QUT, it was really hard for me to do because of the access mm. barriers and I barely made it out. So if I'm acknowledging that that was really hard for me, someone with just one or two more access barriers wouldn't have had that same education or that same experience. So they might not know how to pull together a CV. We're going to provide uh, a workshop so that they can get those skills necessary and fill those gaps, address the imbalance and create a more equitable arts landscape. Um, and our goal is really to showcase the best of the disability arts sector in Australia and showcase national, you know, interstate, world-class standard works. Um, mm. And and in doing so, we challenge the expectations of, or the challenge the perceptions of what disability actually is and what it means. Because when you come to Undercover Artist Festival and your access requirements are met from the get-go and the artist's access requirements are met from the get-go, you hear their stories, unfiltered, uninterrupted and unapologetic. Um, and mm. that's the most magical experience um, possible for me awesome. as a festival director is to see artists finally be heard and to see audiences finally accept and take them on board and experience their art just for what it is. Mm. Um, before you were talking about, you know, working in the access requirements into the aesthetic of the work. Yeah. And I think that is an amazing um, place to end up. But how do you think we get there and, you know, where do we where do we start with that, I guess, in the mm. classroom? What are some easy things we can start doing in I that mean, space? Look, we love a bit of Brecht, don't we? We love a bit of Brecht. Um, and, you know, uh, something I remember quite vividly was thinking and looking at different Brechtian yeah. techniques and going, I know the placards and the signs and things that can mm. easily be adapted for things like captions or setting scene or providing context if there is none or um, differentiating between characters and places. Um, there's also, you know, the narration technique, which can be easily modified to um, include audio description of the set of the characters and it can be done in a really smart way. It's something I did at, um, it sounds like I'm complimenting myself, but at the start of my show hold, um, I had the narrator, um, you know, introduce each of the characters and give a brief audio description. And my audio description was, she's a short curvy little thing with long red hair that probably needs a bit of a trim. And what that did was, yes, it provided that audio description. Okay, she's short, she's a bit curvy. Okay, she's got long red hair, probably needs a bit of a trim. That's the snarky thing that integrates it into the humour and the fabric of the work, mm. but it's still providing the access that's required. Um, and similarly, you know, we had the, um, the narrator chime in and provide his perspective on things when it was uncalled for. Um, and I'd be like, I'm fine. No, you're not. Um, and, <laughs> and at the same time, knowing that, okay, Maddie steps forward into the center of the stage or not center of stage, center of the space, um, to accept a phone call. Um, you don't get that context if you're blind, um, or low vision mm. and, 
what that does is it seems very obvious for some of the cited audience members and some of them might be a little confused, but that confusion comes from having not seen it in action before. And once you see it and get used to it, it's amazing. I do recommend that teachers get along to see um, Wilbur the Optical Whale by Indelibility Arts. It's the first Indel show that I haven't worked on, so this isn't a self-promo, um, but they've integrated um, accessibility into it, particularly Auslan. Um, is embedded into the fabric of the work quite literally as Leanne is interpreting in a bubble that floats around the sea with all of the sea creatures in the show. Um, it is geared That's towards amazing. early childhood. Yeah. It's, it's definitely not one from the high schools. but <laughs> And, um, yeah, it's it's hard because there's not a lot going on in, in Queensland, um, mm -hmm. but Indelibility is doing great work. And if you come along to anything at Undercover Artist Festival in September 2023, you'll be able to see some of this really interesting stuff in action. Um, yeah. And I think it's interesting because as a, um, a drama teacher, um, we are always encouraging students to go see more work because we're like, you can't create in a void. You need to see yeah. work so you know what, what people are doing, but also what you like and what inspires you. And I guess you, what you're saying is exactly the same. So we can start to look at how we can better integrate um, and how we can remove access barriers. We need to go see the work and we need to engage with the work to get ideas of going, you know, I know I'm, I know um, going to see um, theatre, I can only do it with my drama teacher friends because at the end of it, you're like, oh, and they did this and we could do this yeah. in the classroom, we could do this, and, you know, and a lot of, you know, non-drama teachers don't want to deconstruct the show after, yes. but it would be an amazing opportunity to go to see work and be involved um, as an audience and go, oh, okay, that's how we could do that or that's an idea. And I think the biggest thing that I've taken away from today, it's about opening the door and having starting to have these conversations Yeah. because a lot of the time I think we're unaware of what we're unaware of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's to me the biggest the biggest problem in what you're saying. If we're not aware, that's where issues arise. And if we are not able to have those conversations, mm. then they're just gonna get um compounded. Yeah. And look, I think there's also there might be some anxiety around delving into becoming aware because there's so much you mm -hmm. don't know, or it might be a bit scary, but the best piece of advice I can give is that you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, mm. if you are a non-disabled hearing teacher, your privilege may be challenged by unpacking some of these things, but it's not about you inherently. It's about that concept of art being for everyone. And what can you do to help contribute to that more equitable landscape? And there might be some things that are out of your control, like structurally, some buildings in the school may not be suitable, you know, things that require a lot of effort, but if you're able to be that ally in that school mm -hmm. to, you know, champion that change internally, then that's going to make a world of difference for your students. And I think we'll see that the next generation of um, performers and theatre makers and writers, dramaturgs, et cetera, um, my hope is that we see a lot more deaf and disabled artists actually embrace that career um, rather than, you know, as I was told, rather than just preparing for a receptionist gig for their whole lives. Um oh. <laughs> Nothing wrong with being a receptionist and I did it for a couple of years in my undergrad, but you know, there's, there's certainly, I think, um, a need for us to stop placing expectations on what a person can do and just mm. focus on meeting their access requirements to then allow them to show us what they can do.
Mm. Thank you so much for giving up your time. I really appreciate having this conversation with you. And there's so much um, that you've given me to start thinking about, and I'm sure um, all of our members as well. So thanks so much. Um, I really appreciate it, Maddie. Well, thank you so much for having me. I loved it. <laughs> I want to thank Maddie again for the insight she gave us and for all of the advice she offered. We will make sure that all of the resources and websites that she talked about will have links in the show notes. Thanks so much, Drama Queensland. Thanks for listening.